Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Welcome to Interval Drinks, a podcast by the Royal Shakespeare Company in which we talk to artists who inspire us. Opening a show, it's just the sort of terror of, is this conceivable? I can remember a sequence of words in front of other humans. I can remember what to do. I can not fall over. It just might not be actually possible. Theatre is like Power Rangers. It's like when all the Power Rangers come together and make one big Power Ranger. Because it's great and people will have a great time and people deserve to have a great time, damn it. <laughs> have you collected your drinks? Then let's begin. Meeting up in the bar this week is sound designer Claire Windsor with composer and musician Femi Tomoro. Welcome to Interval Drinks, the Royal Shakespeare Company podcast in which we talk to artists who inspire us. My name is Claire Windsor. I'm a sound technician working at the RSC and also the sound designer for Roy Alexander Wise's 2022 production of Much Ado About Nothing. I have a foot in each camp between the technical and the creative, so hopefully I can offer an insight into how the world of sound and music work together. The RSC is a unique place to work because we're the only producing theatre to always use live music for every production. Our audiences are dazzled by a wide range of musical styles, and sometimes the musicians even make an appearance on stage. We get to welcome some fantastic composers through our doors, and one of those composers is my guest today, Femi Tomoa, who I've had the pleasure of working closely with on Much Ado About Nothing. Femi is a really interesting and ridiculously talented individual. He's a MOBO Award-nominated musician, an internationally renowned jazz guitarist. He's also a producer, a musical director and broadcaster. Born in Nigeria and raised in the UK from the age of 10, his music fuses together West African influences from his childhood with some of the great classic American jazz musicians and probably a bit of everything else in between. His music is integral to the show, and anyone who managed to see it will remember the mask ball as one of the best-sounding moments in theatre for a long time. I'm not biased, obviously, but my speakers did make it sound incredible. Welcome to Interval Drinks, Femi. Hi, hello. If you were in an interval now, what would you be drinking? Uh, probably acai, if they have it. A beer, a premium yeah, beer. I know, right. As a musician, are you a fan of having a drink before going on stage or do you stay pretty much teetotal? Teetotal. I can't, I really cannot play. Cause, and it's not just about being like drunk or, I mean, I have, I have done sometimes, but there's always that paranoia in the back of my head. Like, because, mm. you know, I grew up playing quite complicated music, like a lot of jazz music and it's like, some you of those chords. You just can't, you can't remember the shapes if you've had like three <laughs> glasses of wine. So it's like, okay, no drinks. And then, but sometimes occasionally I'll take a glass of wine with me on stage, but only because it looks cool. Not because, you know. Really, it's, it's uh, just a bit of Ribena. Basically, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. In the studio, if you're like creating, mm. is that a different vibe? It is. It can be, yeah. Like sometimes I'll go into the studio in the morning thinking, right, I'm going to spend the whole day working on something and be creative. And then, like the first four or five hours, you're completely blocked. And then where I have my studio, we have a, a bar slash pizza parlor. And sometimes you go in there and then you bump into someone else from the studio complex. You have a beer, you have a chat, and then suddenly the ideas just flow. So 
Kind of works. That's all part of the process, isn't it? Like some people would go, oh, I've got this studio booked from like 10 till 6 and then you only use it for two hours. But <laughs> it's, those two hours could be absolute dynamite. Right, yeah, that's so. it, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking we're both musicians, both guitarists. Yes, indeed we are. You have definitely practised more than me. <laughs> you keep saying that, but well, I have no proof that that's true. Well, I come from like the punk pop tradition where like five chords is pretty much all you get. <laughs> three chords, it's like the Ramones, you do like a three right. chord song five chords if you're feeling a bit complicated <laughs> oh, how old were you when you picked up the guitar like, please tell me you were like four years old so i can feel better <laughs> um i'm sorry but i'm gonna have to burst that bubble oh. i was uh about 17 <gasps> no. yeah i was so about you're... 17 i was i didn't it's funny because i didn't really i wasn't really interested in music um up until that time the first cassette i ever bought was at mc hammer can't touch this the single absolute stone cold yeah i know and um i bought it off do you remember do you remember you used to get those adverts in magazines where you could like send off for like some cassettes or whatever and then you kind of paid later or something it was one of those and i wasn't allowed to do it but i did it anyway my mum wasn't very happy about it she made me send it back (laughs) was that the turning point that was well, that was the first time I kind of got interested in listening to music, actually, really. I mean, don't get me wrong, my dad played loads of music in the house and I enjoyed listening to it. But in terms of owning my own collection, starting a collection, it was the first time. But I dubbed the tape before I sent it back. That was naughty, but yeah. Um, it was resourceful. It was resourceful. <laughs> and it was my kind of first exposure to music that I own. So, you know, it was kind of good. Because my family, when I told them I wanted to do music for a career... Mm. They were very much, my, my dad was like, you're no better than a vagrant roaming the streets. <laughs> exactly <laughs> like that in those words. I don't, it's, wow. The fact that I can remember it like that it means it probably stuck Wow. in my tiny, impressionable little mind. How did your parents feel when you were kind of, they could see that you were pursuing Ooh. it as a career? Not yeah. happy. No. Not happy. Um, because when I was a kid, I always used to say, when I grow up, I'm going to be an engineer. And for some reason, they... My dad took that really seriously. It's like, I was a kid. I didn't know what I was talking Could about. Be an astronaut. You know? Right, exactly. You know, it's like, yeah, I know I said that when I was nine, but now I'm 17, I've changed my mind. I want to be a musician. Well, I didn't know straight away, to be fair. It took a while. It took till I was about 21 to kind of know, okay, I want to do this. And uh, by that point, you know, they expect you to kind of already have, you know, finished a degree and be on your way to your second one, maybe, you know, mm. whatever, but. Yeah, it was it was a little it was a bit of a fallout for a few years, but then you know when you start to make good and and do things when and, they hear what you can do exactly, then they're kind of like, oh wait a minute, this is you know especially when their friends start to go, oh your son is very talented, Ooh, you know and they're like, oh yes of course yeah, but it was like showing them off exactly yeah, but I mean I get it you know it's it is a tough road to pick, isn't it? It is a tough thing. Creatives, yeah. the creative journey is it's not not easier so they're just trying to manage expectations the musical director in much ado about nothing as well jack he also started playing piano at 17 oh wow and i find that fascinating because when you listen to him it sounds like he's been you know like he had his like fingers wrapped on it with a ruler when he was like five or something <laughs> I, yeah. i'm amazed that someone can pick up the piano or other guitar or any instrument at 17 and, and get to that standard mm. there's obviously like a determination and a will there I always feel like instruments call to people kind of like, you know how they say like, you know, animals choose their people. Because I I don't know if it would be the same if I'd started with something else other than the guitar. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I wonder if 
if I'd started with the piano, maybe I wouldn't have taken to it. It might have fizzled way. out. Yeah, you kind of have to get lucky like that and kind of find your thing early on, you know. We come into this profession in all different ways. It's not as simple as saying, oh, I'm going to be an accountant, I'm going to go and get these qualifications. Can you teach creativity? Or, um, what are the merits of, say, going to into structured learning for music or for the arts as opposed to finding your own sound and finding your technique? Because I remember one of the things that I found fascinating about some, um, some artists, like one of your... Um, I want to say heroes. Is it Wes Montgomery? Wes Montgomery, yeah. And Dizzy Gillespie for me. Like they both have really quirky playing styles. Mm. Like my trumpet teacher would have been absolutely horrified by Dizzy <laughs> Gillespie's technique, right. and and Wes Montgomery played with the side of his thumb. Yeah, exactly. But that was what gave them their sound. So exactly. Yeah. How yeah. does it all fit together? I mean, you know what? I okay. I didn't start with a with any kind of formal training. You know, I didn't have a teacher or anything. There was just this one guy at my church growing up who was a really good player. And I just used to like sit and watch him play. And he wouldn't even really explain what he was doing because he didn't really fully know himself. He had, he had just learned it by listening to records. And he said to me, that's how you learn. That's and so that's what I did, you know. And he gave me, he gave me uh, a Wes Montgomery record. And in fact, he gave me a cassette tape. On one side was Wes Montgomery and the other side was George Benson. And he told me, go away with this tape for a few weeks and then, and then come back and tell me what you like the most. He didn't even say learn it or do it. He just said, listen to it for a few weeks and then tell me which one you like. And then I came back and I said, I really like George Benson. He said, I knew you would say that. And I said, why? He said, because, because he's more exciting in the first instance. It's like really explosive. But he was like, but actually Wes Montgomery has a lot more to teach you about music. And I was like, huh? What do you mean? You know, and, I, and it took me a long time to get it. And he, he, couldn't, he couldn't explain it in the way, say, a professor at the Royal Academy might explain theory or something, you know, to you. But he knew exactly what it was because I could feel that he knew it when he played. And so I always was striving to emulate that thing of being able to impart what I knew through how I made people feel rather than how I, well I could explain it, even though I think it's important to be able to explain it, especially if you're going to, try to educate in any formal way, right? So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you can teach it. I mean, I, I think that you can teach it in as much as people can learn it, if you see what yeah, I mean. Yeah, I suppose you could have two people who could play exactly the same piece of music right. and one will have a vibe to it and one won't have a vibe to it. Exactly. And it's like, what what's, creates that vibe? You know, there's just something saucy about, and I don't mean that in, <laughs> in a saucy way, but no, no, some source about the way they play that you know that it's just come from their life's experience. When I hear the first music cue of the top of part two in Much Ado About Nothing, it's Dogberry, who's yes. like the police, the police chief. Her theme is like the filthiest <laughs> trombone sound that I have heard this I know. century. Oh my gosh. Everyone who hears it, it puts a smile on the face so much. And that right. I think is a, is a good kind of example of the source. I, I, I was watching them rehearse that scene and I mean, we were all falling about laughing and it was, it was almost like the theme, the melody just popped into my head. And for some, somehow I knew it had to be on a trombone. Like it's just, it was literally, and then, and then they were rehearsing the scene and I was kind of putting together a demo of it. And as soon as they finished the scene, I just turned the volume up and pressed play and everybody was like, yeah, that's exactly it. You know, so it was really cool. It was one of those moments where I guess we were all on the same page, you know. I think that kind of thing, no one can teach you that. It's just something I guess you have to you have to be alert and open and and 
just daring. As we're talking about Much Ado and instrumentation, like one mm. of my questions was about like how you pick the instruments, how you tell the story and um, I suppose what's the process of like, deciding who goes into the band? I mean, I knew by that point what the lineup was going to be. When I first got asked to do the, the Much Ado uh, composing job, I initially thought I was going to have the same band, but rather than have a brass section, have a string quartet oh. with the band. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, that was my initial thought. Oh. But then I thought, well, if I wanted to have Afrobeat singular rather than Afrobeats plural, two different <laughs> things, then I had to kind of lose the strings a little bit because as much as I, I love writing for strings, it, was like it wasn't going to be the thing. So I went for brass instead because that's a big part of the sound of that music. Hence why they were there. So I kind of knew what the instrumentation was going to be and I decided it based on what the kind of main stylistic elements were going to be and okay. what I thought would best represent that. And was that know. before rehearsals even started? You had a conversation with Roy to say... Exactly, yeah. We sat down together. Yeah. He talked about a, a general kind of idea of where he wanted this, the music to sit. Exactly, yeah. He was just like... When I came up with this, and in my head it was like Afrobeat and Afrobeats. I remember you talking about um, that the Afrobeat, the music, was like the language of Afrofuturism in some ways. Was, mm. that, was that how you were describing it? It was the sound of what Afrofuturism could Well, just be. because it's, yeah, because it's, you know, like Afrobeats plural for me is the music that's, to me it represents young Africa, like Africa of, say between the age of, let's say, 16 and 50, okay. right? To me, that that's, you know, um, because the, some of the, the, the guys who, the people who started Afrobeats, which is kind of like pop, West African pop music, the older kind of generation of that would now be in their early 40s easily. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they would already okay. be in their early 40s. So to me, that represents, and it represents... Uh, a kind of a, a generation that kind of was looking outside of the continent of Africa, like looking to the world beyond and going, well, look, we are here, you know, we're doing this thing. And that's why for me, not that it's not so much maybe that it represents the future, but it definitely represents um, an Africa that's excited ab about the future. It feels like the, the, there's been a crossover when the, some of that music might not have reached the same kind of views or um, masses that it would have done previously, but because of TikTok, because of YouTube, mm. because of social media, yes. the stars of this kind of genre of music, mm. the, the amount of views that they get... I know. It's, it's just incredible. I mean, is. they're like absolute Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest names is... His nickname is Starboy, and he is, like, up there. I mean, he, he's up there with, like, the Jay-Zs and the Beyonce's. He's like in, Elvis. In terms of, you know, and it's, yeah, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's such a... When I, I remember when I first moved to this country, age 10, like, that's not something I would have ever imagined would ever happen. But then here we are, you know, and it, it probably won't last forever, but because that's things are trends, aren't they? You know, they yeah. move on and they come, come and go. But right now it is, and, and I think it's, it represents uh, a generation of young Africans who are basically here to take part. I should just say here that I got my Afrobeat and my Afrobeats mixed up. Apologies. For the benefit of anyone that doesn't know, Afrobeat singular 
is a genre of music defined in the 60s by Fela Kuti. It combined elements of West African musical styles with American jazz, soul and funk influences. Afrobeats plural came much later and is kind of an umbrella term for 21st century African pop music. It started in places like Nigeria and Ghana, as well as developing in the UK later on. One of the music cues that didn't make it into the show was it was a, a fantastic bit of music that you wrote for the mm. pre-show, and mm. it was it was like a sound and light and music um, moment where we were trying to tell the story of how this new world came into existence. Yes, and the music that you wrote for it didn't sound like anything else that you'd written. It had like this really kind of retro sci-fi but from the future kind of right. action thriller kind of vibe <laughs> right you've made a name for yourself already with like certain styles of music that are probably in your comfort zone mm. but then you know you might get asked to do a show where you might have to start composing in like 16th century baroque right minimalism like yeah. does that excite you are you are you be, up for the challenge i would be so up for it though that's the thing because for me, music was always like about the language as a whole. I mean, yes, you know, we can't help but kind of gravitate towards some, some things more than others. But I remember when I, when I did finally get around to studying music, I first studied up in Leeds. And uh, we had this weekly lesson, which was harmony, with, I can never remember the name of the teacher. He was this quite nice, quite stern, but quite nice, short, I remember he was Jewish because he, he wore a, a, a cap to lessons and I can't remember his name, but he just, he just knew, he really knew his stuff about like classical harmony. Up to that time, I was self-taught completely. I was reading like the purple book, um, the blue book the and the pink book, book. Yeah. The, the AB theory books, yeah. right? And um, I remember him kind of bringing those books to life for me in the way he would explain and he would set the piano and explain the theory, but in practice... And it really got me like very interested in classical harmony and the way he would talk about like the history was very interesting. So yeah, for me, I've always been really curious about music as a whole kind of language, not just, you know, and also what happens when this music tradition meets this music tradition. Yeah. That's always very fascinating to me. I don't know how we came onto the subject, but you said to me that you'd love to hear your music being played by an orchestra one, one day. Yes. And I said... My goodness, that will absolutely happen because I was, after hearing like the songs and the, and the cues from the show, I couldn't I couldn't see how your star wouldn't keep going in oh, the ascendant. That's very nice. Of um, you. So, is there kind of a dream hit list for like projects? I mean, there are a few. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to do a musical. Oh uh, yeah, I know, right? I never thought I'd say that ever, but it's getting it's becoming more and more pressing to me that. I have the, the, the band numbers and everything in my head already. Already? Yes, absolutely, yes. It would, be, it would be like a, small, a smallish orchestra, 40-piece, plus, I guess, um, an ensemble, um, like a kind of five- to six-piece like band who specialise in as much in West African folk music as they do in jazz music. Wow. That would be the, yeah. And there is a thing in my head that would be like, this would be a dream come true. 
if I could ever make it happen. I was never really into musicals mm. growing up. I didn't. It wasn't something that was on my radar. My experience of what musicals were was kind of like the Andrew Lloyd Webber style. I don't want to say traditional, but you, you knew where the music was kind of going. Yes, yeah. And now people are making musicals about all different kinds of stuff. And, sure. it, and the music is really exciting and fresh. Yes. I haven't actually seen Hamilton live. I remember watching it on Disney. The, Plus. On Disney, yes. But there were moments where it was like, this is really powerful stuff. You know, I can see how people leave the theatre feeling really excited, you know, even though we're talking about a story about a dude who lived, what was it, like two, three hundred years ago. Yeah, you know? on paper, you wouldn't yes. think that that would become exactly. the hit it was. Exactly, and that's what excites me about the the genre and the, that kind of ability to to reach people using various kind of creative streams at the same time. You just kind of hit them with everything from all yeah. sides and they don't know what to do with themselves. It's quite exciting. One of the things I really enjoyed was watching you work in rehearsals and mm. and every composer works differently. You are very much a composer that's in the room a lot, very collaborative, and the setup that you have in rehearsals is mm. kind of like a mixture of kind of electronic stuff and more traditional instruments, but mm. you're kind of like playing the music in, uh, like looping stuff, rehearsing it with the musician so you already feel really part of it and I think that makes it doubly hard sometimes to, yeah, exactly. to then hand it over exactly yeah yeah it was it was yeah it was a tricky one but the best uh, uh compliment you can get as a composer is when people enjoy playing what you've conceived yeah. you know and genuinely so genuinely not just because oh it's the composer let's all be on our best behavior but you know um the guitar player, Nick. Uh, Nick, he, you know, we've, we've had quite a few chats about the guitar parts and some of the inspiration for, for them. And, you know, I've pointed him at, you know, some kind of West African, like not just guitar based music, but string based music that influences me and stuff that I grew up listening to. I think one of the things about our profession that probably not many people know about um, is as well as the composing side of it, mm. arranging the music is like a whole other skill and dark Absolutely. art. And I suppose for the people that are listening, arranging is kind of taking those kind of like threads, those melodies, mm. and then uh, writing the parts out for the various instruments in the band. Mm -hmm. And that can go one of two ways sometimes. If you don't quite know what you're writing for, if you don't quite know how a trombone works or how a guitar works, exactly. you might write out a piece of music that it's really impossible to play. Yeah, exactly. And in your head, it makes sense. But for the trombonist, you yeah. think, oh, crikey, I can't get from there. <laughs> can't get from this note to this note exactly. in that time. So yeah. I think when you were talking about how you and Nick work together, I think there's, there's probably like a mutual appreciation there yes. that he knows you understand the craft behind yeah. it. And, right. and the skill of arranging is, is up there with the skill of composing in some ways. I mean, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, they're all just things that I find really fascinating. I'm very curious about, you know, why certain groups of instruments sound so good together um, and why some don't and why a melody, you know, uh, the same melody played on two different instruments has a completely different impact on how you feel it, how you experience it. Like things like that make me really kind of excited about music because it's one thing to come up with the melodies and all that and the chords and write lyrics but it, even things as simple as you know having two or three singers in the company and deciding whose voice matches this melody better 
you know, beyond their range, but just the tonality yeah. of their voice. Things like that are very interesting to me, so. You started life as a, a jazz guitarist and composing music, and now you find yourself kind of working in theatre mm. as well as doing everything else. Mm. Is there anything that surprised you about this industry and um, or any, anything that took some getting used to? You know what, if I'm really honest, it's really how slow everything moves. <laughs> That's the one thing. I mean, I, I've thought about this. You can tell I've thought about this one, right? Because I answered <laughs> so quickly. No, it's things move so slow. I understand it. I do get why now. I didn't when I first got involved. I, I used to get really frustrated. Um, are, we, are we kind of talking about maybe the technical rehearsal where all the departments come together to kind of create what the audience sees? I mean, sees? partly, yes. But also just partly just the whole process. Yeah. I was very, very, very lucky to have got my first job uh, with Marianne Elliott and Miranda Cromwell. Wow. Who were like, you know... I mean, you started at the top. It's pretty yeah, much, yeah, basically, it's pretty much you downhill know, from I, the I was like, what am I going to do now, you know? And I remember after we had opened Death of a Salesman at the Young Vic um, and we were out for a drink one evening after a show and I said to them, you know what? Theatre is like Power Rangers. It's like when all the Power Rangers come together and make one big Power Ranger. You know, you got the music, the sound, the lights, the acting or everything comes together and creates this huge unstoppable monster that just permeates whoever's in the way, you know, like. And I think that's, that excuses you that know, is the, it's how the best slow analogy it is. I've heard of theatre in a long time. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll, I think so. But <laughs> people laugh when I say it's like, what, Power Rangers, what? <laughs> Maybe it's a scale thing. Maybe like the bigger the show, the slower it goes. Definitely. That's been my experience so far, for sure. You know? I think it's about having the right snacks. I think you are right. <laughs> I think you're right. What was your favourite snack of all the snacks that we had on the table? Oh, I mean, the malted milk were high up there. Milks. Oh. We went through various nuts. Yes. Like our technical rehearsals start at <laughs> 10 in the morning and yep. they go through till 10 in the evening and we do yep. that every day for about, oh, for a long time. Yeah, I mean, at least a week, right? Yeah, at least a week. So we need to have some kind of snack-based item on the desk to keep us going. And at the beginning oh, of every tech, I always go, am I going to have a healthy technical <laughs> rehearsal or am I really going to just so you see what just happens? Just let it all hang out. Yeah. yeah. i tell you what my favourite snack was during tech. Oh, yeah. It was the the biscuit sandwich that got made up <gasps> by the An trumpet invention. player. Yes, and it was, you get two digestives and you put a Percy Pig in the middle. Amazing. It sounds, it sounds... Sounds disgusting. It does sound disgusting, but I urge but everyone good, to try right? it. Yeah. It feels like a very posh Jemmy Dodger. Yes, that's what I, I would agree. I would agree. Mm. With its own vibe, though. Completely. Completely its own vibe. So when we first started working together... Yes. Uh, I remember meeting you in rehearsals and... Um, and as a sound designer for this show and I have like the creative cap on mm -hmm. with the sound design and creating content for the show but then mm -hmm. I also have the kind of the production sound um, cap on which is kind of like the technical aspects of making the show happen mm. and one of my roles I suppose is to make you sound really good. Which you did amazingly by the way yeah, for everyone you. listening. Um, so <laughs> let's just talk about a bit, a bit about the process that we go through. Yes. Um, when we start rehearsals, we've all had a chat with the, with the director and, and there's, a, there's a shared vision for the show. Right. 
one of the things I love doing is is collaborating with a composer and making sure this content that I make doesn't get in the way of the content that you make. Right. And sometimes we are both trying to do the same thing. Mm. Um, and I remember when we had our first chats, you were really open to collaboration. And we, I remember getting really excited about watching like various films and going, oh, can we try, can we try like a sound that starts off here but then grows into the music and, and this and that. And there was, a lot, there was lots of stuff to get excited about, wasn't yes, there? Yes, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I also, I mean, f- when I first came into theatre and someone said, oh, you're going to be working with a sound designer. I was like, well, what, sound designer? What is that? But, it, but I learned very, um, what it was. And actually it got me really excited because it's like, oh, well, you mean there's someone who's going to basically take what I've done and take it to another level in terms of how it sounds, how people experience it, all the sound that people hear, mm. including the sound that I've created as a, as a composer, still gets handed over to yourself to kind of decide where it sits in the plot in terms yeah. of how people feel it or hear it. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to make sounds in isolation. I, I right. always really like to hear what's going on in the rehearsal space, hear what the music sounds like, and then make sure my sound is sympathetic to what you right. do. Yeah. Because you could you could read the script, you could go you could say, Oh well this this speech needs something here or this scene change needs something. But if you work in isolation, you yes. could go down a completely different route to what Absolutely. the show needs and Absolutely. it wouldn't sit in harmony with the music. I feel like there has been a couple of occasions mm. in in my career where the composer hasn't written something for this section, and right. I, so I've put something there. Right. And it could be like an an atmospheric sound. Right. It could be a naturalistic sound, but it, the the scene has needed it. Right. And I've I've put something in, and it's sounded really lovely. And then the composer <laughs> has gone. Oh, do you know what? I should be doing something there as well. <laughs> Yeah. And then the music cue sits on that spot and then you can't hear my sound effects. And I think, well, yes. only I'll know they're there. So I might as well just chop them out. <laughs> From a sound designer's point of view and a composer's point of view, we're both trying to support the story. So yes. we're both trying to do it in our own different ways. Yes, yeah, yeah. For me, it's the secret weapon of theatre, sound and music. You know, because we know you, you know you're coming for acting. You know, it's the theatre, but it's the secret weapon that people don't realise it's going to hit them until it does. And then they're like, oh, wait a minute, you know. I think sound can be, the, the role of the sound designer can be quite invisible sometimes. Yeah, definitely. People, unless it goes spectacularly wrong. Yes. Then you're not always conscious of like what no, the sound that's true. is providing in, in the show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It will be interesting to do a show where you've had an audience who have seen it with all the sound and the music and then oh, invite them yeah. back to see it and there's none of it there. If I go and talk about a sound design somewhere, yeah. um, there's a really iconic film, it's Jack Nicholson, it's The Shining. Oh, yes. And the opening credits is a car, it's an aerial shot and it's a car driving through this forest. Mm. And if you turn the music off, it just looks like, oh, we're off on a lovely journey through the wilderness. <laughs> and it's like a travel show or something. Yeah, yeah. And then you put the, the sound on and it's something like, I can't remember the name of the music, but it's something like The Prayer for the Dead. Oof. And it's the most sombre, chilling. Right. Mu- so as soon as like, you hear the music and you see the car, you're just thinking... Some- Someone's off to get someone. Done. Something <laughs> bad's going to happen. <laughs> oh, man. Or you could do the do the adverse and go, or the opposite, and just go, like, put, oh. I don't know, some Cliff Richard music over the top yes. of it. Yes. I remember seeing another sound designer do um, a production of Macbeth. It was a Matthew Dunster production in Manchester. And it was incredible. 
there was three young teenage girls kind of playing the witches. Mm. And when bad things happened and they murdered some people, it was a Girls Aloud song that played. <laughs> and and oh, it was like that, that kind of, I think it's got a name, I want to say contrapuntal. Right. It's a form of counterpoint, isn't counterpoint, it? Counterpoint, yes. yeah. But it, I guess it's, uh, in counterpoint, you have uh, contrary motion is one of the, the movements in counterpoint. And that this would be a form of contrary motion where two things are travelling in opposite directions whilst working together. You know? Yeah. But yes, that's counterpoint. That, well, we've all learned something. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The performance is about to continue. So it's a three-minute bell. Yes. The interval is nearly over. Mm-hmm. We've had our Asahi beer. Yep. It's been very refreshing. Who, real or fictional, would you like your next interval drink to be with and ah, why? Um, real person, uh, uh, a young movie director and composer called James Samuels. <gasps> he who did? made The Harder They Fall. Oh, yes, my goodness. Exactly. Because I watched that film and I was literally on the floor because I couldn't believe how incredible it was. The music, the sound, the, the visuals, the direction, the, the design. It was all so incredible, the story. And it's one of the things I've seen in recent times that has really hit me. You know? And he did the music. He, he did, wasn't he only did. The, just the director, he did the music. He composed the music and curated any music that wasn't original. Yes, yeah. it was all in his head. Amazing. I saw it as well. Yeah. I found it fascinating the way that the music morphed from being quite traditional kind of western style to being into this other world of like yeah. kind of hip-hop and yeah. and reggae yes. and and and, we, and the audience just went with it because absolutely because why fitted. not it, yeah it, it works it just goes to show guilty Ooh. pleasures in music we've all got them okay i love this song um from oliver um where is love oh you know the one no it's from the play oliver and it's one of the most beautiful beautiful songs ever written and it is a guilty pleasure kind of because i'm supposed to be like this like you know like hard jazz musician (laughs) whatever but i love listening i listened to it this morning because it came to my head and every so often i'll just put it on because it makes me feel nice well there you go there's nothing guilty about that but maybe you were just (laughs) going to say it in public (laughs) maybe not just lastly, um, I have recently become a parent and one of the things that I really loved about uh, when I was a kid is that I went through my parents' record collection mm. and found some really amazing albums that I can still remember now. Mm. One of the things that makes me quite sad is that in this like kind of Spotify, iTunes, digital world, there's like less and less things to pass on tangibly to yes. like the next generation. So I am starting a vinyl collection that Fantastic. one day I can pass on and go, here, son, listen to these. <laughs> and there's some kind of musical education behind it. Mm-hmm. What one album would you put in there? Any genre, just give him, just give him a decent education. Mm-hmm. I would say Graceland. <gasps> Paul Simon! I would say Graceland. Because that's what I give to all my music students when they first come to me and say, I want to play music. Give them that. Go listen to this record. I, th- I feel like Graceline represents pretty much everything that I love about music, from its African influence to the Western influence to incredible lyric writing and just the huge imagination that Paul Simon has, you know, kind of boundaryless approach to making music. So That's a strong choice and it yes. is going in there. 
Great. Excellent. Fabi, thank Lucky you so way. much. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Join us next week when director Aaron Parsons will be getting the drinks in for fellow director Tinica Craig. Remember, you can listen again to past episodes on the Royal Shakespeare Company website. Search RSC Interval Drinks to listen to more episodes, including Series 1 of Interval Drinks. Interval Drinks.